The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, March 16th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a Democratic debate last night and in a sign that every other consideration in public life has been subsumed by coronavirus, I will say ah, four or five sentences about the debate and leave it at that. Joe Biden's nomination seems imminent. His performance was acceptable to heartening. He seemed more of the moment than Bernie was. Bernie folded the current situation into his usual points about poverty and health care. Fine as far as that goes, just not, I'm sensing what America wants. Here's one answer clarified to me why Biden is more aligned with where Democratic voters are right now. He was asked, why don't we need a revolution? Here's the answer. We have problems we have to solve now. Now, what's a revolution going to do? Disrupt everything in the meantime? Bernie instead cited statistics about the richest 1% and tax breaks to billionaires and cited this explanation for all that. And it comes down to something, Jake, we don't talk about. The power structure in America. Who has the power? And I'll tell you who has the power. It's the people who contribute money, the billionaires who contribute money to political campaigns. Now, he's right on some levels, but everyone who's watched 45 minutes of Bernie Sanders over the last five years knows this is what he always says. It doesn't make him wrong. It just makes his argument quite familiar in a time of the unknown. Also, railing against the powerful is less resonant right now than at any time I could think of in the last five years. We want a powerful forceful solution. We want structure. We want stability. People are nervous, understandably nervous, and they're not mad at the powerful. They feel powerless, and they don't feel powerless against something that looms above us and is larger than all of us. They are powerless, just like in War of the Worlds, of a thing so microscopic you can't even see, a virus. Most people would love for an institution, a hospital, the medical profession. Yeah, even big pharma to save us. People don't want to break up Merck and Novartis and Janssen Pharmaceuticals right now. They want those companies. Yeah, even if they're big, rich, multinational companies, they want them to save us. So Bernie didn't give a disastrous answer there. It wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just not of the moment. Joe Biden seems to better understand what we're up against right now. And in any case, I don't think anything will stop Joe Biden from getting the nomination, short of the nominating process itself being stopped. We're seeing that in Ohio, maybe the other states that were to vote tomorrow, and that just adds more uncertainty into the process. On the show today, I spiel about local political leaders actually leading in a time of crisis. But first, an in-depth interview with Dr. Fred Buckner, who is an infectious disease specialist, and he has been treating COVID patients hospitalized at the University of Washington Medical Center. His story, knowledge, perspective, and insight, I think is valuable. So here it is, Dr. Fred Buckner, up next. Mm 
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Washington state is the hardest state hit so far with the COVID-19 virus as of Sunday. And this is as of Sunday, the death toll is 42. The number of confirmed cases is 772. I hesitate to use that number, even confirmed cases, because with a lack of testing, we really don't know how many cases are out there. It is certainly a multiple, many multiples of that. Fred Buckner is a professor at the University of Washington. He's a doctor and a specialist in infectious diseases, and he has been treating patients at the University of Washington Hospital there, and uh, he has an interesting story to tell. Hello, Dr. Buckner. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Nice to meet you. Thank you. So just tell us, because your background is not that you see patients every day, but just tell us how you got to see the number of COVID patients you have been seeing over the last few weeks. Right. Well, uh, I do uh, run a research lab, but uh, my colleagues and I divide our time in terms of uh, uh, performing infectious disease consultations at the University of Washington. And uh, I happen to just be on duty uh, for the month of March here. And uh, so uh, by virtue of being uh, in the hospital now, I've been uh, obviously consulted and asked to see uh, most of these patients that have uh, come in and been diagnosed with COVID-19. Have the Kirkland nursing home patients been coming to your hospital? We've seen two or three of those patients. I think we have about a dozen patients that have come to us so far. Two or three of them have been from the uh, Kirkland nursing home. We're just starting to get, I think, real busy with this. The first case came in on March 2nd, and they've been sort of steadily increasing. I think we had three new diagnoses that were admitted yesterday. Some of the uh, outlying hospitals, particularly Evergreen Hospital, which is in Kirkland, uh, has really taken the front end of the brunt of this and, and have many more cases than we've seen. Some of our other nearby hospitals, such as Northwest Hospital and Harborview, are also seeing quite a few patients now. What are the requirements to actually get admitted to the hospital? These are generally patients who are having enough shortness of breath and breathing difficulty that they require oxygen supplementation. So that's the main reason that we will admit a patient. If we think they're very fragile and likely to deteriorate quickly, then they'll be admitted to the hospital as well. But as you may have gathered, you know, we don't have room for everybody who has a diagnosis of COVID-19. So if they are, you know, young and well uh, in general and and look strong and don't need oxygen, we're not going to hospitalize those people. Do you know offhand how many patients the hospital has admitted and how many you have seen with COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, the UW Medical Center, like I said, is, has uh, admitted about a dozen patients so far, but the trend lines are certainly going up. And I've, you know, directly seen about uh, two thirds of these patients, I guess. Uh huh. And are they all in a vulnerable group? Because that's what we heard the elderly and people with an existing either a pulmonary or heart ailment uh, would be most likely to have complications. Are all the patients you've seen in one of those groups? Exactly. Without exception, actually, Mike, every single one of these patients has what we would consider a 
pre-existing condition or com- comorbidity, as we as we call it. Uh, we're seeing a lot of um, things like uh, diabetes, uh, chronic lung disease, heart failure, kidney disease. Most of the patients are are uh, elderly. So yes, those seem to be the uh, the the risk factors that were described and identified in China, at least so far, seem to be bearing out with our experience too. What could you do to treat them? Well, at this point, uh, what we're doing is basically providing supportive care. Uh, That consists of giving them oxygen, you know, intravenous fluids. Uh, We have uh, had one patient that is required going on a ventilator, and he's actually also getting a kidney dialysis, so that is obviously very aggressive. Uh, Many of these patients were putting on antibiotics, just regular antibacterial drugs because there's concern that they could have a secondary bacterial infection. But of course, those don't work directly on the on the coronavirus. We don't have, you know, proven therapies for that. Um, just this week, we are beginning a clinical trial where we'll be testing a, a, an experimental drug called remdesivir. And uh, we hope to start enrolling patients uh, to start receiving that. Uh, we've had a couple patients that we were able to get this drug actually sort of provided before the trial was, was starting officially. So those are the things that we're doing at this point. Are you worried about a shortage of equipment? And if so, what specific pieces of equipment? Yeah, great question. That is one of the key problems that we are potentially facing is what we call PPE, our personal protective equipment. You know, the respirator masks are certainly in short supply, just gowns and gloves. I, I haven't heard that those are in such short short supply, but particularly the masks. Just the process of going in and out of one of these rooms involves exchanging gloves five times. Uh, so you mm-hmm. can imagine for every single time a nurse or me goes into a room, we have to we have to use five sets of gloves. So we're going through this stuff at an alarming rate, and it's probably not sustainable. The other piece of equipment, ironically, that we're running low on is for diagnosing patients. We use these swabs. You've probably seen pictures of people getting their noses swabbed, and there's actually a shortage of or an impending shortage of these special swabs that are being used. And so if there's something that, you know, the federal government could do, it's really to address these uh, shortages of equipment like this, because if we run out of these things, uh, then we're we're really going to be in a serious situation. I'm going to ask you about your capacity, your respirator and ventilator capacity. But first, I'm going to ask you a question that displays my ignorance, but sometimes you have to do that. Um, and it's this, what's what's the difference between a respirator and a ventilator? I don't know. I would figure many people in the audience who are hearing these terms don't know. Well, I think the term respirator just refers to the the, the, the equipment that the nurses and doctors are wearing on their faces. Uh, the okay. respira- The respirators are just these... N95 masks or the more fancy things that we call PAPRs that protect us. The ventilator is totally different. That's what the patient is put on uh, if they uh, can't, you know, oxygenate themselves on their own. Uh, you know, the, we insert a tube down their throat and, and put them on a machine that basically pumps air in and out of their lungs. So going back, you said the first patient was admitted when, March 3rd? I think it was the second. Second. Okay. March 2nd. Did you know, did the hospital know, did you know, okay, this is big and this can hit? Or did the severity of it, you had been monitoring 
the reports out of Wuhan, I would assume, did the severity of it even sneak up on you guys? Well, you know, we were, the, the situation had already hit over uh, with this nursing home at Evergreen Hospital, which is about 10 miles away from us here. So we knew this was here, uh, and we knew this was now spreading inside our boundaries. So uh, we were, you know, already getting into full gear for this. There, there wasn't a surprise. It was just a matter of, of when. I, I kind of liken this to, you know, the hurricane preparation where, you know, the hurricane's out there somewhere in the Atlantic and you know it's coming your direction and you're not quite sure how many days it's going to take to make landfall and you don't know if it's going to be a direct hit or swerve swerve back out to sea or be a glancing blow. But that would be a, an analogy to think about how we're, we're approaching this and we're taking preparations for, you know, a direct a direct hit. Yeah. And you're not in the eye of the storm because the eye of the storm is the calm and it's just ratcheting up where you are. But I don't know how much monitoring you've done of the uh, discussion of this. And I think most people, most officials and people who are following this closely are taking it seriously and urging uh, measures like closing bars, restaurants, social gatherings. What would you say? What would you say to someone in Kansas or Texas or Tennessee where the government has not yet said closing down restaurants? Do you think that they necessarily have to do it to avoid spread and a pandemic? Well, we we have done that here, as you may have learned, that they've, they've now closed down uh, restaurants and bars and things of that nature. It seems like the right move to make. I guess what I would just say is that when this arrives, it it arrives faster than than people appreciated. I mean, we were we were all kind of this seemed sort of like an abstraction to to all of us. I mean, we right. were worried worried about it, but you could kind of say this is a problem in China, and then well, it's in South Korea or whatever. And then we had this first case up in Snohomish County, but it looked it looked like that problem had been identified and the patient had been quarantined and all of his contacts had been followed and it looked like we had dodged a bullet and then suddenly this situation blew up in the uh, the nursing home in, in Kirkland and uh, all of a sudden it was it was here and it was real and uh, so that's going to happen around the country and and people need to uh, get out of the mindset that this is other people's problem because it's gonna it's gonna be everywhere and and the sooner you accept that and get get going the the better off you're gonna be. You are this is not as you established this is not essentially your day job but you do this rotation through the hospital and you study infectious diseases in a lab. Were you fascinated by this novel coronavirus just from a I guess molecular or disease standpoint? Well, I'm certainly uh, in, in awe of it. it. It seems to have both a very uh, strong ability to be infectious and contagious while also being, you know, pretty dangerous. Thank goodness it's not as dangerous as Ebola virus or, you know, the MERS virus and, and some others. But this one seems to really be contagious enough to spread itself around. And even if the mortality rate ends up being, you know, one percent or lower than that it's far worse than the flu and the flu kills 40,000 people or so a year in the United States so you know we have a very formidable problem on our hands yeah does it remind you of anything else you've studied <laughs> I, 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 I can't say that it does it seems to be a fairly 
a fairly unique thing. I guess uh, influenza is the closest thing, and the pandemic in 1918 is probably the closest thing that we've all, uh, you know, that humans, none, not too many of, of us are still still around, but uh, uh, that's, that's uh, probably the closest analogy. What measures are you taking for your personal interactions after working in this environment all day? Let me just tell you a little bit about what what's involved. I mean, we I mentioned before the the business of of entering and and leaving the rooms. We, we the terminology is we don and doff our PPE as we go in and out, and uh, seeing you know when we're seeing the patients, we're obviously quite mindful of what we're touching and what we're doing. You can't be touching your face with your gloves and things like that. We have a mask on. And uh, so these are, you know, these are sort of the measures. I, just yesterday I was in a patient's room and I was having, you know, a very difficult discussion with this uh, elderly woman about her situation and was discussing the possibility that this drug might become available. And uh, she was, you know, a little bit confused about that and, and wanted to include her daughter in the conversation. So we agreed that we would uh, talk to her daughter on the phone. And uh, I'm not allowed to bring my phone into the room, so I, uh, uh, she, she had her phone, and so she, she uh, dialed up her daughter on the phone and, and talked to her for a few seconds and then handed the phone over to me. And, and so now I'm looking down at this, flip, at this phone, and it, it, it happened to be like this 1990s version flip phone, and so I'm looking, for, I'm looking for the speaker button on this phone, and there's no, there's no speaker button. I'm looking for the volume button, and there's no, there's not even a volume button. So now I'm sort of holding this phone, you know, kind of, kind of close to my head, but you know, a little ways away. I mean, it's basically the hot zone in my hand, and uh, and 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 having a conversation with, uh, with uh, the woman's daughter, who I can barely hear because of this phone. Anyway. Uh, I, I I was able to have that conversation and kept myself safe, of course. But when I left the exited the room, I, you know, you take off all the PPE and such. And I, um, uh, my partner was waiting outside, and and I she saw me like lathering my ear with a bunch of with a bunch of uh, alcohol gel. I, I hadn't touched my ear, but. I was par- paranoid enough because I was holding this phone a couple inches away. So she, she was kind of laughing at me. Anyway, sort of, sort of keep, keep calm and carry on. Yeah, but this does strike me. So these patients, they have f- COVID and they are in the hospital, though, not because they're necessarily the most contagious, though, from what I understand, when the symptoms show themselves uh, up as full-blown, they are quite contagious. But it's not that there aren't hundreds or thousands of other people at that stage of contagion. It's just that these are the people who are most vulnerable and most likely to die, which leads me to wonder if you go through this, but the advice with, I don't know, Tom Hanks, Rudy Gobert, Justin Trudeau's wife, just all the hundreds of people who have it and might have it quite severely, but are not uh, likely to die or less likely to die than the people in your hospital. It seems to argue that some version of this amount of precaution should be going on with them and the people around them. And I don't know if we've been getting that message. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, first of all, you're right. The, only, the reason these people are in the hospital is because they need hospitalization to, to support them. They need the, the oxygen primarily and the nursing care and that sort of thing. 
so that's that's why you know they're in the hospital. I think we have a very challenging problem with what to do with diagnosed patients who we're sending home. I think in many cases we're able to do that safely, where they can maybe either either uh, if they live alone and there's people that can bring them food and check in on them, the public health people can help with that. But there's many situations where that's not going to be easy. I mean, just imagine uh, college dormitories or group homes or of course, the senior homes. And one thing that we're very scared about are people that live in homeless camps. A lot of these people might get the infection, not be sick enough to be hospitalized, but are not in a position where they can be isolated and kept away from other people. And that's an area that I think the public health department is really uh, working on aggressively. They have a you know, a hotel, I think, or a motel that, that they're trying to place these types of people in who have difficult placement issues. Uh, we have at least one patient in the hospital now who's now recovered uh, for the most part, but we're having a hard time getting her out of the hospital because she needs to be in a nursing home and none of the nursing homes want to take her because she's kind of, you know, has this scarlet letter that she had COVID, even though we've proven that she's not infected anymore. Oh. And the last thing I want to ask you about is the psychology of it. Maybe there's a range of responses, but it wouldn't be irrational for people to come in and thinking, essentially, they've got a death sentence. So what are you in the hospital doing to communicate to them or administer to their psychological needs? Yeah, great question. I mean, that's exactly what I've been spending a lot of my time with these patients. First of all, they are surprised when they learn this and they are frightened very frightened. Uh, and we obviously provide them with reassurance. The, the majority of people, even the hospitalized ones, survive this. So that is good news. But it's hard to prognosticate uh, who's going to do well and who's not going to do well. And uh, I try to be honest with people that I'm not able to predict exactly how it's going to go, but that, of course, we're going to do what we can to help them with the understanding that we don't really have antiviral drugs or anything very specific, so that's frustrating for us. Yeah, I'll mention one other thing that's particularly cruel about this disease is that we, for obvious reasons, don't allow visitors. In fact, we've completely disallowed visitors to everybody in our hospital. So, you know, these people who are often elderly and in poor, fragile health, aren't able to have their family members and loved ones with them to comfort them and to uh, guide them through this process. They're basically there by themselves. Of course, the doctors and nurses and others are doing what they can, but uh, that is one of the very challenging parts of this uh, of this problem is the inability to allow visitors in to see them. We have actually made a few exceptions to that, uh, I, but but for the most part, it's it's difficult to allow visitors in. Anything else that I haven't asked that you'd want people to know? Just you know, I think this this idea of um, that that um, particularly, uh, you know, I'm I'm still hearing from friends and doctors who live in other places, and I'm hearing things like, yeah. We don't really have it here yet. It just doesn't seem like anyone's taking this too seriously yet. Our hospital's not ready. And I guess my my message is that that they gotta they gotta take this very seriously and start preparing now, get get their protocols and procedures in line. You know, the word that, that we say is we're 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 flying the airplane while we're building it. 
we're having to invent things. You've probably heard about these drive-through clinics where they're swabbing people in their cars. It's really about the only way we've come up with right now to safely be able to, to process a lot of people. You can't, you can't just tell everybody to come down to some clinic and wait in a waiting room until they get swabbed because they all infect each other. So we, we've come up with this uh, method of uh, this drive-through testing, and that seems to be working, working quite well. So there's a lot of, uh, of innovation and, and such going on here. There's an amazing uh, public health and infectious disease group in, in Seattle, and I think uh, a lot of the country can look can look to us for for guidance as they also go through this. And and the University of Washington even has a what's called an external facing um, protocol page. I could I could maybe even email it to you so you could put it on your website that provides uh, protocols and and procedures that we uh, have developed. Uh, so that uh, others could could have a, a jump start and not have to have to learn it all from scratch the way that we sort of had to do. We will do that, and I will thank you. Frederick S. Buckner is a professor in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington's Center for Emerging and Reemerging Infectious Diseases. He has been treating COVID patients these last few weeks. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your actions. All right. I appreciate uh, your, your listening to my story. Thank you. And by the way, there is a link to that document that Fred talked about. It's on our show page. It's from the University of Washington, featuring all the resources and guides for medical offices and professionals. Even if you are not one or don't know any, it is just interesting to see what we're up against. And now the spiel. You know, there are other leaders besides the president. Let me rephrase that. In the absence of presidential leadership, we turn to other executives, the governors. Many governors have stepped up, and in many cases, they're doing a wonderful job, but not all cases. I've noticed a general trend among governors that the Democrats are generally unafraid to highlight the potential dangers of coronavirus. And they do not mind contradicting what is the clear inclination of the president to paint the picture as overly rosy. Democrats are generally unencumbered with any consideration other than serving their people. Some Republican governors are also doing a great job. Larry Hogan of Maryland, Mike DeWine of Ohio, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts. They all closed schools down. They all shut down mass gatherings. They all communicated the correct message, which is this is serious. We need to act decisively. But other governors, all of them Republican, though not all the Republican governors, as I just said, but everyone I'm seeing who's falling into this category is a Republican, are communicating in slightly different ways and also adapting different, which is to say, less aggressive policies. Right now, almost all the states have schools that are closed in them, if not all their schools closed. The action that right now is the dividing line between decisive actions and passive actions is banning gatherings of more than 50 people. Here is the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununo. He was asked, will you not just recommend that gatherings of 50 people or more halt, but will you mandate it? He said he will not. What we've seen so far is that communities and organizations across the state that have large events are canceling and, and postponing those events. Uh, they're making good decisions based on their constituencies uh, and on the risk factors for those individual events. And I think that's, I think that's a credit to the people of the state of New Hampshire that we're not in a position that would require a government mandate. 
to a certain strain of conservative thinker, not requiring a government mandate is such a good that it outweighs the urgency of ensuring that there actually are no mass gatherings. Again, it's not all Republicans. Sununu was actually asked if he would follow the decisions of the governors of Vermont and Massachusetts, who are also Republicans, who have issued such a mandate, such an order. But again, there is a way that Sununu talks about this moment that doesn't dismiss the idea that this is an emergency, but pushes back against the call that we are in a crisis. And as we take these actions and flatten that curve, I think there's going to be a real normalization. If we get to a crisis point, of course, the state stands ready to do whatever we have to do. But we are nowhere near that level right now. And I think that's what that was yesterday. Sununu seems not to have come off this declaration of two days prior. We know that at this time, there remains a very low public risk to New Hampshire when it comes to COVID-19. Perhaps Sununu believes in optimism at all costs in the time of crisis. Perhaps it is a leadership choice that he could defend on strategic grounds, a strategy that eludes me. Perhaps he thinks people won't respond well to dire predictions. I don't know. From where I sit, realism seems the better tack. It gives the impression that leaders are leveling with the populace. Here, let's take another of New Hampshire's neighboring states, Maine. This was their Democratic governor, Janet Mills. Things are likely to get worse before they get better but they will get better. That seems appropriate. More appropriate than Sununu, more appropriate than this from Oklahoma Governor Kevin Sitt, who, like Sununu, encouraged but didn't mandate that we follow the CDC guidelines, which limited gatherings of 50 or more. The CDC has issued some updated guidance to protect our most vulnerable, and we are encouraging all Oklahomans to follow them. We also want to remind Oklahomans to continue to wash your hands frequently, stay at home if you're sick, and be thoughtful of how you engage in the public. Life as we know it will change for a little while, but it doesn't have to shut down completely. Continue to find ways to support your local businesses. Pay attention to how you're feeling and make wise choices based on your risk. Alternatively, the government could, if it were so inclined, take the option of the people making bad choices off the table by making a law, by making a mandate, by mandating that they follow the right choices, such as not patronizing restaurants. The governor, Governor Sitt, by the way, did patronize a restaurant over the weekend and proudly posted on social media that he was doing so. The most high-profile leader during the outbreak has been New York's Andrew Cuomo. Today, he banded together with the governors of New Jersey and Connecticut to coordinate closures, which is smart. I mean, let's say you wanted to go to a bar in New York. New York closed the bars. You just say, okay, let's hop on the path train to Hoboken. No, not with all the states coordinating their actions. Governor Cuomo exemplifies the straight talk model. Flatten the curve, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. That's what all you hear. That's what you hear every day on TV. You see this curve. We must flatten the curve. The concept is right. Flatten the curve, slow the spread so the healthcare system can handle it. When they say this, I don't think of a curve, I think of a wave. And the wave is going to break, and the wave is going to break on the hospital system. We're doing everything we can to flatten the curve. I believe we've taken more dramatic actions than any state in the United States. I believe we've had the most effective response of any state in the United States. 
I don't believe we're going to be able to flatten the curve enough to meet the capacity of the healthcare system. There is a quality to the seriousness and the severity of Cuomo's clarifications that actually don't cause panic, at least not in me, but instill confidence. I guess they don't instill confidence in everyone because President Trump tweeted earlier today, we just had a good teleconference with nation's governors, went very well, Cuomo of New York has to do more. But then in a shocking move, Trump deleted the tweet. At least he has firm control over his own Twitter feed, perhaps the only viral contaminant that he has the power to stop in its tracks. And finally, a note, because I am only one person, and we are a country with 50 governors, more if you include territories. So how is your governor or local leader doing? Did he or she say something insightful, inspiring, clarifying, or maddening? Drop us a line, maybe with a link to a video, at gist at slate.com. Thanks, and let's all, to quote the poet, do more. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST associate producer. She is doing more by actively knitting that afghan she's been telling herself she needed to get started on for months now. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, is doing more by baking and freezing cookie dough. Bake, then freeze. Bake, then freeze. Don't lick the bowl afterwards, though. Your tongue will freeze there. The GIST. We'd like to clarify that an afghan is both a woolen blanket or shawl and a popular dog breed. In Priscilla's case, she is, of course, knitting the dog. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.